Hey there, and welcome back to Tax Sale Insiders. We're a podcast for successful lean and deed investing. Thanks for coming back and checking us out. And even though we are winding down season three of Tax Sale Insiders, we definitely have a few episodes left, so stick around. In this season, we have focused on bringing you case studies and specific worst case scenarios that you can learn from to better protect your portfolio. And if you're just joining us, my name is Rachel Seidensticker. I'm the COO over at Taxel Resources, who is powering this podcast. If you haven't checked us checked us out um, or checked out other seasons and episodes, there are some good ones to choose from. In fact, our guest today is making his fourth appearance on the show. You can actually find Scott Walterbach in season one, episode seven, digging into the specifics on investing in his great state of Missouri. And he's also joined us in this season a few times to share numerous case studies you can learn from. Scott also offers a yearly seminar to investors and other attorneys to learn about the ins and outs of Missouri investing. So basically, in general, he's an awesome resource. So it's time to sit back and relax for another episode of Taxel Insiders, this time again with Scott Walterbach of Bessine Walterbach and our very own CEO, Brian Seidensticker. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Taxel Insiders. I am your host, Brian Seidensticker. I'm the CEO of, of Taxel Resources. Uh, with me today, I was managed to snag some time from Scott Walterbach. Scott's from uh, Bessine Walterbach, which is a, a firm out of Missouri. Scott's been doing uh, cases in it related to tax sales in Missouri for many years. I can't remember exactly how many years Scott uh, you got into it, but um, we've been, if you're new or haven't uh, been in the series yet, uh, Scott and I have, have talked a few times. Uh, we went through a whole uh, overview of how the, the process works in Missouri. So if you want to learn how the tax sales work in Missouri, it's not a, 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 a single process and it's not an easy answer. There is another episode that you can check out that goes through that in, in a lot of detail. Um, but anyway, Scott, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure to be here as always, and thank you for having me. It was 2007 when I graduated from law school, but I actually started working on some tax sale cases with some licensed attorneys before I became a licensed attorney. So that was probably in 2000. Six in 2007, and uh, if my math is correct, that's what, uh, about 15, 16 years? 15, 16 years. Time flies. And in that time, I've done hundreds of tax sale cases. A lot of them don't take a whole lot of litigation. You know, there's a lot of times there's the same thing happens in litigation that happens in the tax sale process, which is you never hear from anybody. But (laughs) that's not always the case, and maybe we can talk about one of those cases today. Yeah, yeah. And I guess just to kind of review some of the things and and for folks that are want to look at some of the other episodes, you know, we've we've talked about, you know, uh, best practices for sending notices, um, you know, interests that survive um under current law, you know, um return mail, what do you do with that sort of thing? Um we had a great a great conversation, I think, on that subject, if I remember right, Scott, of like if you do the perfect thing in every case, it gets a little cost prohibitive. So what's when's enough enough and or right. good enough, right? I think is the the base of that. would be a great episode for folks to check out. Uh, but um, you'd mentioned there are some other cases that were interesting, and so you know maybe let's dig one of those out of the archive and and talk more about it. 
Yeah, and this this particular case that I'm thinking of was a case that we filed back in 2019, and uh, it, it ultimately got to a judgment in favor of the tax sale purchaser on my motion for summary judgment in July of 2021, and we were able to effectively use the Missouri statute regarding uh, a prima facie case on tax sale uh, quiet title to to get the judge to, to rule in our, our favor on it. And the, the decision was not appealed. Um, but the basic gist of it was, it, it, as I recall, and I'm looking at some of the pleadings while I talk, because, you know, lawyers have bathtub minds. So we fill it up with the things that we need, and then we empty it out and move on to the next thing. But um, there was a particular person that was the owner of the property um, had long since, I believe, abandoned it and then had, um, uh, it, it went there was a probate estate for a couple of the heirs uh, so presumably you know obviously if there's a probate estate the former owner had passed away um, but didn't deed the property away or anything like that and this is a somewhat common in, in tax sales uh, sometimes you have a tax sale property because the property is abandoned sometimes you have a tax sale property because the person who's living there can't afford to pay the taxes or doesn't believe they can afford to pay the taxes. Sometimes it's neglect, but often, well, maybe not often, but at times it's because the owner has deceased and they have not dealt with the property through a non-probate transfer. And so then you're into, into probate if they have any creditors or if they have any heirs. In this particular case, there was a probate estate, but it never really got finalized. It was uh, it was a bit odd to read some of the docket entries, although the more experience I get with some of these probate estates, the more I understand this maybe is not as uncommon as I used to think that it was, that an estate starts up you um, either at the request of an heir or a creditor of the estate, and then... You know, there's some action in it and there's some things that happen and there's some expenses that are approved or claims that are approved. But then there's not really like a final full disposition of the property of the estate. And that's kind of what happened here. And um, the defendant in this case was a an heir in the estate, but had never done anything to record their interest in the property publicly. Now, as far as sending notice and everything, kind of going back to some of the things we've talked about before, you know, if their name appears as as an heir of the deceased former property owner, now there's at least a decent argument to be made there that their interest in the property is of public record because court records are public records and and they're listed as an heir in, in the probate estate. So as far as sending notice, yeah, absolutely. You know, you need to try to search for um, probate estates when you have a deceased prior owner. In this case, um, it wasn't a, a notice issue. It was that um, the, the they, he had an attorney belatedly that got involved in the case and um, sort of was trying to argue that we or somebody else had some obligation to do something more with the probate estate. I never really, I think, totally understood that argument. And of course, neither did the court ultimately. 
but at any rate, uh, they were saying, you know, this this was part of a probate estate and you didn't do anything within that probate estate. And you had some obligation to go do something within the probate estate. And, and of course, we're saying, well, no, 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 there's there's a, uh, a state interest in the property that is superior to whatever interest this heir might have. And so in order to preserve his interest, he got notice. He had to pay the taxes or or suffer the same fate as all the other lien holders in the property. So um, we, we got a collector's deed and we filed our case and, and they defended it on this basis. And we ultimately filed a motion for summary judgment arguing that the defenses that they raised regarding the uh, airship, well, first of all, I, I, I believe I had to um, amend the petition to name this person because maybe we figured out who he was later or I could be confusing that with a different case but anyways um, they filed a motion to dismiss which was denied and then on motion for summary judgment uh, they filed a motion to strike the motion for summary judgment and then ultimately that was denied and they filed an answer to the motion for summary judgment also kind of belatedly and uh the court ultimately found for us in the sense that we had notified the uh, the heir properly that uh, he uh, didn't uh, file his interest in the in the property. You know, his interest didn't appear public record in the property. And on uh, summary judgment, the issue was more of a procedural thing in the court where we were basically saying, look, all the all these things he's trying to raise about the probate estate are not defenses that are allowed under Missouri law. Number one, we've made a prima facie case under Missouri law, and that statute, uh, you know, that's something that's pretty central to what we do as far as uh, quiet title actions. Is is you know, a lot of times as a plaintiff in a case, you're trying to marshal your evidence so that you can get over this this initial hurdle. Of making a prima facie case and what i mean by prima facie case for for those that might not know is just like a basic case still subject to defenses but on its own i've done enough in the absence of any defenses or affirmative defenses that would be enough on its own to make your case and win well there's a statute in missouri that talks about what the plaintiff needs to do in quiet title cases to make a prima facie case they make it really easy on plaintiffs as compared to other cases. So, you know, you're kind of in the driver's seat as far as that goes. We we did that in this case, and then the uh, the defendant came forward with these other defenses. But we were basically telling the court, look, these other things that he's complaining about related to his airship uh, in the property and what could or maybe should have been done in the probate estate, it's really of no moment in this case because he didn't publicly record his interest in the property and he received notice and and didn't do anything to uh to preserve his interest in the property namely you know redeeming the property and paying the taxes so um there was a a lengthy brief in which uh you know they were arguing that he received no notice of the tax sale and that our evidence wasn't sufficient and um we basically argued that he didn't receive uh First of all, that receipt of notice is not the test. It's whether or not the plaintiff did what they were supposed to do in compliance with the applicable statute, 14405, namely. And and then also, you know, this background uh, kind of notion of constitutional due process. Um, 
So, we, you know, we informed the court, we briefed all that and, and we're able to prevail. But, you know, it's just a it's a good example for uh, a tax sale purchaser who might be listening to this to understand that just because it doesn't kind of fit the cookie cutter mold that a lot of these do fit where, you know, you have you have an owner, you have uh let's say a, a homeowners association that's filed a lien, you got a deed of trust and you got some judgment creditor out there, right? Some basic stuff where it's easy to find the party who filed the interest in the property and you send all them notice and then they don't respond. You go get your deed and life's good. Sometimes there's a little more to it than that. And so, you know, I, th I think the caution here is that even if somebody maybe doesn't have necessarily a public re publicly recorded interest in the property doesn't mean they won't think they they still have some interest in the property that survives the tax sale for some reason and and this is a good good example of a case where specifically they believe they had an interest in the property as an heir to the former owner even though they were not named in the beneficiary deed even though they were not you know they there was no deed to uh, this particular heir or any of the heirs. In this case, there was three heirs. Two of them disclaimed and said, yeah, I know what's going on. I don't want anything to do with this. It was the third one that we were kind of dealing with. Um, but so my point is, even though there's not somebody that that appears maybe in a title search report or that has like a really common publicly recorded interest in a place you would expect to find it, mm -hmm. sometimes there's a little more to it than that. And so... Uh, you know, you, you really should go look at that probate estate or that mechanics lien or, or whatever else it might be in a different place than you would normally look. Because the place you would normally look is the recorder of deeds office, right? Mm -hmm. If there's a deed in the chain of title that, or, or a lien in the chain of title, that's specifically what you're looking for. Well, sometimes there's a little more to it than that. And so, you know, if you run across something in a title search report that indicates there might be somebody else that has an interest in this property, it's worth it to take the time, pause, take the extra time to have you or somebody that's uh, sophisticated in it or your and or your attorney look at it and, and determine who should get notice and where they should get notice because sometimes when you get to a quiet title lawsuit all of a sudden it seems like they're very interested in this property whereas they haven't been for the past five years because you know they haven't paid taxes for three they let the redemption period go for another year and you think yeah you know, I'll just do a basic effort and that's enough when really, you know, looking up who the heirs are in court records and finding out what addresses they might be available at or sending. And we've done this, too. We've, we've sent notice to like their attorney if they had one in the in the probate estate. For example, if one of the interest holders was the personal representative and often they're represented by an attorney, then you send notice to them, too. And you try to do whatever you can consistent with, you know, somebody who actually desires that they receive this notice you go the extra step and you do those things as a tax sale purchaser because once you get into quiet title you'll only find out you didn't do enough at a time when it's too late to do anything about it so <laughs> taking that extra step while you can is is always advisable that's um i think that's a good i guess segue into you know what could you know from the investor's perspective what would be some of those things that are hints on a title search that would say, hey, Amy, you should look at that in more detail? Is is it a, um, I guess what, and I don't know if you can think of a specific example on this case, right? What was it on the title search that made made you go, oh, I should go look at the 
you know the the the, the uh, probate court right docs and and yeah. see you know what's out there um in this specific case if i recall correctly i believe it was one of the remember i said there was three heirs mm-hmm. i believe that one of the and there i think there were three brothers i believe that one of the brothers actually went to the recorder of deeds office and filed a disclaimer of interest in the property and and so i thought that was strange normally you know if you see something like that in a title report you might be you might tend to think well this is just somebody happens to have the same unique last name as the owner filing a disclaimer of interest you know maybe they lived there for a period of time or something or there was some deed or they previously were an owner you know like 20 years ago and they just filed this disclaimer because they needed to get a loan and they needed to disclaim that this was part of their property you know all sorts of things, but that it just sort of piqued my interest. It said, "Okay, why is this disclaimer here?" And then, uh, you know, go go to that document, which was in the recorder's office, and come to find out, well, there was a recitation in there that the uh, that the owner, who the county was showing as the owner, was deceased. And so then um, we would probably do this anyways, just as a matter of regular diligence. We would go look at court records and do a search. Now, if the if the person's name is James Thompson or Joe Smith, we probably wouldn't do a name search in records because we're going to come up with all kinds of stuff and there's there's not going to be anything useful you can do with that. This was a unique name. And so, you know, a quick search pulled up and in Missouri you can search, you can do it by different years, by by names, by you can do it by a name and a middle initial, and there's all sorts of options. You can limit it by, you know, a specific county or a specific, you know, uh, year that you're looking for. So you run a couple searches, and then I found the probate estate. So usually within the probate estate, there's a petition by a creditor or, or you know, for for uh, letters of administration, and it, a lot of times they will list in there the names and last known addresses of potential heirs so certainly if um and then i also have title reports where within the search itself it says you know uh john doe former or john doe was the owner of the property but sometimes it'll say john doe comma deceased Mm -hmm. so that's an indication um and then sometimes if we get returned mail we will do it like a, a a skip trace database search for these people and and then if you see a date of death in there you know that the person's deceased and a lot of times the report rerun also shows heirs or or uh, possible relatives usually it's listed under so you can kind of then you can kind of search for those but sometimes it takes a little bit of a peek behind the curtain to find those a mechanics lien would be a good, another good example if there's a recitation of a mechanics lien in a title search report well mechanics liens at least in missouri are not recorded i guess they probably can be and maybe sometimes are uh, recorded in the recorder of deeds office, but sometimes they they're just in like civil court records, mm. and and those are public, you know, considered to be public also. So there's at least an argument for somebody to to make there where it says, you know, while I didn't record it, I did take some action to make it appear of public record, and you could have seen it. And so then you get into well, did I comply with the statute strictly? And then even if I did, is that enough for constitutional due process? And you could see somebody making a, a persuasive argument, especially in Missouri, where the Supreme Court has said that it disfavors forfeiture in tax sale cases. 
you know, there's an argument to be made there that even though you strictly complied with the statute, a reasonable person in your situation desirous of actual notice to these people would have done more. Mm-hmm. So you could have and should have done more and therefore you lose. And then you get into what's the proper remedy if you lose, you know, and usually that's payment of of your investment plus interest and and that kind of thing. That's kind of and times back to a, a theme I hear on a regular basis. We've talked about several times, Scott, of the, this whole idea of due process and it overriding whatever the state statutes might say for required yep. notification. You know, you can do what the state says is required and you can still have it contested and lose. Right. If you don't follow you know, due yeah. process. So for, maybe that's the most valuable lesson here you know, for the for the listeners is one, you know, like you mentioned, the few things that you could see on a tile search that would maybe point you in the direction of of doing that additional search. Uh, but that in general, everyone on here, uh, investors should have a very good understanding of what due process is, what that entails, what is required. And that always be at the forefront of your mind when you when you're required to foreclose on on one of these tax sale properties because ultimately that's going to be required in order to to, to file a, a quiet title suit and to get insurable title at the end of the day. To the extent it's possible to understand the very vague, fuzzy concept of due process. <laughs> I mean, what you know, I, I would say I don't know that I necessarily understand due process. What I understand is the nature of the case law and how it's developed describing the concept. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I kind of know where it's been and where we've gone and kind of where we are today. But, you know, really, it's you almost need somebody local and somebody savvy because, you know, for example, I think we talked about this case last time where, you know, an out-of-state investor didn't send notice to a particular person because, they either didn't know that the local access to court record system existed or they didn't have access to it because they're, you know, they're they're not they're not local here. And in that case, you know, there was nothing in the title report. There's nothing at the collector's office, nothing in the recorded documents at the recorder's office that would point to this specific address that the defense, the former owner was saying we should have sent notice. But. If if the tax sale purchaser was local, they would have known that you can easily a very unique name again. They would have known that you could search for it. They would have found an address that appears of public record and could have sent a notice there, and that was fatal to their case. So, you know, while while due process talks in terms of reasonable efforts consistent with the with the desire to achieve actual notice, I mean, functionally, what that really means to me in the real world is that. You got to be really smart, really diligent, and really savvy because on the back end, what you're really dealing with in the court system is courts that like to set tax sales aside and put everybody back to status quo, and you're going to get your money back. So don't worry about it, mm-hmm. you know, because we disfavor forfeiture and we favor, you know, property rights, essentially invested property rights. So, um, you know, what it comes down to is you've got to be really smart, really savvy, really diligent lot of experience and then you stand a chance and and even still i make no guarantees that the notice efforts that we took are going to survive this you know this due process <laughs> well that's and you mentioned that um you know the courts in missouri don't favor you know forfeiture and I, that's actually common as I, that i've found in most states there there's a couple areas where um and usually it's not statewide maybe some local judges that might think otherwise but 
um, in general, mm-hmm. that's that's what investors are are up against in in everywhere and not just Missouri. Yeah, and you just have to know that. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you stop doing what you're doing, but I think it should inform you as to your negotiating leverage along the way because you have to know that at the back end if the if the former owner or whatever fights this to the end which is costly and time consuming and uncertain so not everybody does but if they do you know where where are you going to be at the end of the day what kind of settlement leverage do you have now and sometimes it's best to take a look at it and go you know um I'm going to spend a lot of money and we're going to get to the end of this. And it's still a pretty uncertain result, given the fact that, you know, we're the the investor who has money. And this is a, a little old lady that, you know, doesn't have any money and just wants to keep her house. And so you just have to know those dynamics and how that might uh, affect what you're doing, because you can't necessarily control for that. And it's not necessarily black letter law that you can just go read. You just kind of have to know that's what's going on in the background. Right. Again, key to, like you said, someone local, someone savvy, someone knows that we're doing, um, always recommended to, to get a, a local attorney on your side, at least talking to at some point in the process, if not uh, doing a lot of that process at the tail end. Um, Scott, I always appreciate getting on. Uh, you always have some amazing insight. Um, you've been doing this a long time. Um, it, and that's the difference between you or someone like you versus, you know, there's a lot of attorneys that say they would, they can do this, right? But starting from scratch is a whole different ballgame versus somebody that is in this case, types of case study on a daily basis. Uh, but thank you again for hopping on with us. We'll definitely be uh, doing this again for all the listeners. We'll be doing this again in the near future and, and we'll dig up another interesting case and walk through it. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, appreciate you having me and look forward to doing it again sometime. It's always fantastic to have Scott Walterbach join us here at Taxel Insiders. I'm sure he'll be back. So, you know, if you like the information you're getting from him, be sure to keep um, an eye out. Also, a reminder that you can find him on episode um, seven in season one um, for more specific Missouri investment tips. Thanks for joining us. Keep checking back. I know we're winding down season three, but we're not done yet. So we're here every second and fourth Wednesday. And I'm Rachel Seidensticker signing out. Happy investing.